I am Jeff Nyquist. This is the StrategicCrisis.com podcast for a March 28th, uh, 2010, and with me is Robert Bukar. Uh, he is a cinematographer, originally from Czechoslovakia, and he has been working on a documentary uh, about the changes in Eastern Europe, and he's got a book that's just come out. Its title is And Reality Be Damned. So I want to welcome Robert Bukar to the podcast. Hello, Robert. Uh, hi, Jeff. It's nice to talk to you always. Yes, uh, it's been a while, and your book came out, what, uh, two, three weeks ago? Well, uh, probably like three weeks ago, yes. Finally, we made it up and, uh, in this, English. This is the English version. The uh, Czech version of the book came out uh, last year, I believe. Yeah, ironically, the English translation came up uh, came out in November before this English original, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, now everything yeah. is done. <laughs> and to let people know what you did is that you, you had, uh, being from the former communist bloc country of uh, Czechoslovakia, you uh, had uh, known people and you had some insight into the changes there. The revolution had happened 20 years ago now. In 1989, uh, the Velvet Revolution, where communism collapsed in Czechoslovakia and it collapsed throughout Eastern Europe, that it wasn't as advertised the reality be damned. The reality was different than as presented in the Western media. And you interviewed people from Vaclav Havel's bodyguards to former disgruntled secret police officials to uh, the, the at the time the head of the CIA, Bob Gates, uh, gave you an interview. Um, uh, tell me, uh, the, or our listeners briefly, what kind of uh, things were you told by these people in this book slash, you know, a uh, series of interviews that you also videotaped and hope to make a, a, a film out of? Well, you know, every one of those individuals saw, of course, the issue from his own unique perspective. But overall, you know, we may say that pretty much everybody agreed that things didn't happen the way public was told it happened. So, mm -hmm. so... There is no question about that, that whatever official version, version of the whole event was, was cooked up and, and, and was different than reality. What's interesting is that the, pe that the people in the West and the people in the East each had, as individuals and as a group, had different motives for coloring what happened as other than what actually happened, don't they? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, especially people living in Eastern Europe, they have a tendency to see everything from a really narrow angle, you know, from their own personal experience. They, they are unable to comprehend the big picture. While people, of course, those who formerly worked for CIA, KGB, or government uh, here in, in the United States, they, of course, see the whole picture. Of course, everybody a little bit again his own way, but they are able to comprehend the big scenario which is behind it. I uh, I, I have in my hand uh, Tim Weiner's book Legacy of Ashes: The History of the CIA, yeah. which the Washington Post called must reading for anyone interested in the CIA. And basically, this book paints a picture from the founding of the CIA of bungling, incompetence, ignorance, bureaucratic turf battling. 
um, that the CIA was basically an incompetent organization from its founding, that it was penetrated by the KGB at the outset, that it remained completely um, unable to uh, carry forward its, its mission, that the very few successes they had were like the, the overthrowing of uh, Mossadegh in Iran back in the 50s, and a few other uh, kind of capers like that that uh, that really really weren't uh, you know involved against the Soviet Union. Uh, that whenever they were against the KGB, they basically lost. Um, when you interviewed uh, Bob Gates, did you have the impression that he understood what had happened with the fall of the Soviet Union? I would doubt that because. If Robert Gates is an extremely intelligent person. You know, he, he pretty much told me up front that he doesn't going. He's not going to tell me anything what he didn't wrote in the past. So he, it's hard to say, but I believe that he believes what he's, he says. And then I don't see that he saw the situation the way the other his colleagues saw it, you know, or maybe the way I see it now that I think he's got a little bit different version, but who knows what he knows and <laughs> yeah. who knows what we don't know. <laughs> well, uh, it is it is the, the joke that, you know, uh, in the Cold War, uh, KGB and CIA uh, spies get together and he said, uh, uh, the KGB guy says, we knew that you knew. And the CIA goes, well, we knew that you knew that we knew. And then he says, you knew that? <laughs> you know, um, but it, 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 let's go through what, what's your version of events. The Velvet Revolution was ordered from Moscow, wasn't it? Well, according to all documents which are available, and over here the huge resource in that sense was Vladimir Bukowski, who's got all those documents from two priceless sources, so it's directly from KGB archives and then from Gorbachev's uh, Institute Library. So according to that, yeah, everything was prepared by certain section of KGB under leadership of Yuri Andropov and pretty much Gorbachev later was just one lucky pick, you know, to execute the process because Andropov died sooner than he expected because he was a very ill man. Mm -hmm. But uh, there are thousands of documents about that, you know, a lot of that stuff is available on the internet on, on Bukowski's website, and nobody cares. You know, nobody wants to read really, it. Nobody goes to read it at Bukowski. Nobody wants to go to study it, read it, or write something about it. Um, what is now the, all these documents? They're in Russian, so people have to read Russian in order to go to them. That's another problem, probably. Yeah, yes. there's a language barrier between the East Europeans. I mean, I, I'm fortunate that I've met so many people from Poland, Czech Republic, Ukraine, Russia that speak English and the languages there. I, I don't know those languages well enough to speak them fluently, so I can't uh, break the barrier. But by socializing, meeting, writing, uh, networking with these people, I've learned a lot that the story in Czechoslovakia of... Moscow ordering the changes is the same in the other countries. 
of Eastern Europe that there was a plan that at least goes back to Andropov. If we listen to KGB defector Anatoly Golitsyn, the plan goes all the way back to Khrushchev's time, that it's a long-standing plan and that the KGB itself created the dissidents, the celebrity dissidents like Vaclav Havel, as people who were, who were sort of uh, picked to uh, lead these revolutions that the revolutions would be controlled by KGB underground and Communist Party underground mechanisms and that these countries aren't really independent from Moscow. They only appear to be independent from Moscow. Is that kind of your sense of it? Yeah, exactly. The, the uh, dissidents work probably um, according to all, you know, informations I got were created for that purpose to actually... So there is a reason for revolution. So dissidents, you cannot do revolution. So if you want to do revolution, you need a decent. They created a decent, uh, especially talking about Czechoslovakia, the decent was financed by CIA. Mm-hmm. So, so the, dissent, the dissent was, was originally... The dissent was was fostered and organized by the KGB, and then the CIA sort of jumped on the bandwagon. That's that's the understanding. Pretty much, KGB created those guys. They pre- they directed them. They controlled them in a way. At least the core of them. Mm-hmm. Before there was a snowball effect of a bunch of people who had no right. idea what's going on. But the core of dissident movement was under you know uh, under KGB control in a way, and and West jumped on it and 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 help it to grow and and prosper. That's funny that it's in my book, in the end of my book, and reality be damned, that when I ask, when I started this project, I had sort of informal meeting with one top CIA officials, former CIA officials, and I asked him this question. So you guys, you knew that KGB is running this dissident show and you were still financing them? What values, what have you been thinking? And he sort of smiled at me and said, will you give up such an opportunity? So that tells you what they were doing. It's, uh, they well, were just catching well, up whatever they could. You know, what's interesting is that in Legacy of Ashes, the history of the CIA, the CIA had always had this dream of supporting anti-communist movements in the Eastern Bloc. And the early part of the book talks about all the attempts to support these movements and the hundreds, if not thousands, of agents that died in these attempts that there was never in the Eastern Bloc a successful oh. CIA operation to support a dissident movement. And in the 40s and 50s, basically all the CIA foreign agents were swept up, killed, or turned against the CIA, every single one. And it's documented this, uh, Tim Weiner got a hold of thousands of pages of, of recently declassified CIA documents about the earlier period of the Cold War. And it's it's staggering that the CIA, but the CIA persisted. It kept doing it because, as one CIA official said, we have to keep trying uh, to support dissidents, regardless of whether they're under KGB control, just in the hope that, you know, as luck would have it, as the roulette wheel will turn, maybe we'll find a dissident who isn't. Uh, well, maybe we'll get a penetration somewhere along the line if we just try over and over again. But because we're talking about a police state where the manpower of the KGB and its sister services was over a million strong, that the few thousand CIA officers and and few thousand more CIA agents never had a chance against these numbers in this sophisticated organization. 
And so they basically did this because they didn't know what else to do. Yeah, that actually when I talked to Pete Bagley, you know, he pretty much said the same thing. And he was actually the director of those operations in Eastern Europe for a long time. Yeah. And he talk, yeah. he talked specifically about Poland. He he said that after fall of you know uh, communism, when he talked unofficial way to his KGB counterparts, and they had those sort of meetings, informal meetings, discussing stuff, that he realized that everything CIA did in Poland after World War Two were actually actions set up by some KGB, you know imposters to just to destroy opposition any any type of opposition yes so yes. pretty much they were they were flying completely blind on everything yeah i believe that operation in poland was called uh, operation win w i n and there were operations in in eastern ukraine there were operations in east germany there were operations in romania i think romania was the first country they attempted things in uh, it's uh, it's funny. The first head of covert operations for the CIA was a man named Galloway, who taught horsemanship at uh, I believe at West Point, and his nickname was Wrong Way Galloway. <laughs> <laughs> to give you an idea of these guys, <laughs> well, yeah, I this, have a lot was... of respect for Pete Bagley, but but uh, but yeah, he was in. Bagley was a very is a very brilliant, uh, eloquent man who probably is the is the. Uh, one of the high points in the CIA personnel, and uh, very frankly admitting in his memoirs that we were outwitted by the KGB. His, his memoirs were, um, I have it right here, I forget the title. I did a review on it uh, uh, a year ago or two. But uh, uh, he was a friend of James Angleton, and uh, he basically believed that the CIA got snookered by a false defector named Nosenko. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you know what? Uh, this this was the biggest sort of surprise for me when I went when I started this project. I never thought of this. This was completely new revelation to me. Uh -huh. And of course, the public is completely ignorant in these issues. I had just a couple of weeks ago. I had a little presentation about my book here in Chicago. Nobody in the audience ever heard of Venona files. You know. Oh man! So when I mentioned Venona file, this is pretty like a bottom line if you want to understand what the hell is going on in in CIA since yeah, you know beginning. Nobody has a clue. No. So nobody reads Venona files books. You know, nobody knows what it was about. Nobody has any idea. Yeah, Mr. Romerstein, who I interviewed in my radio, uh, uh, in my radio show, my regular radio show on. Uh, um, about uh, just a few weeks before the 2008 elections, uh, I had him on there. He wrote the Venona file book. And what it is is the United States has been good at code breaking. And at one point, they broke some of the Soviet codes. And they were able to decipher them to the point of figuring out that certain certain numbers in cer of, of people inside the U.S. were agents, people inside the government. Uh, one of the facts in his book is that in 1943 in the Roosevelt administration there were 320 or 30 odd spies Soviet yeah. agents that's a figure that we get from the, the uh, analysis of the Venona uh, material so that a lot of the claims of, of, of uh, people back in the early 50s that the US government was heavily infiltrated then 
were true and that the government is of course still infiltrated, many of the governments around the world are, that the KGB is good at doing this and the CIA never has been good at it. And you know, one of the things that Tim Weiner points out in his Legacy of Ashes, the history of the CIA, is that the CIA has really been good only at one thing, which is depicting failure as success. <laughs> that's, that's basically, and you could say the whole Cold War is follows this pattern that we depicted our failure during the Cold War as a victory. Yeah. You know, and, and that goes yeah. even to that issue of the international terrorism, which CIA was pretty much like denying for years and only... You know, after Shana came in and, and some people in defense intelligence, you know, saw the opportunity to find something, you know, get out and force CIA to admit it. But they were pretty much denying either for on purpose or just out of ignorance that it ever existed. Yeah. Yeah. There was in the CIA, they wanted to deny that the Soviet Union had anything to do with international terrorism. And, of course, as a consequence of that denial, uh, we're fighting the Defense Intelligence Agency, but the Defense Intelligence Agency basically embarrassed them into admitting it by saying, well, yeah. uh, you're, you're, dis you're going against all your sources? Well, we're not going against ours. And that kind of put it out of him. Uh, you interviewed um, Vladimir Bukovsky, uh, and I, I, there's a bit in there where Vladimir Bukovsky is a Russian dissident historian uh, who lives in in Great Britain, and he basically said that, you know, you can't really talk about this in the West. Uh, they think it's a conspiracy theory kind of thing, that it's sort of far out there, but it is real, and the Westerners don't want to deal with it. Yeah, you, they think that either cuckoo or, or, or it, 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 it doesn't exist, yeah. But the, the methods of fighting the Cold War, the methods of disinformation, deception, penetration, double agents, uh, false defectors, and so on, is all very real. It, it, it has a history going back, uh, it has a history going back more than uh, half a century, in fact going back to the 1920s when the Bolshevik regime in the 1920s sort of ran a similar deception yeah. Uh, against the, all the Western intelligence services to, to gain diplomatic recognition from Western European countries. They kind of uh, made a show of, of that Russia was sort of in the hands of anti-communists, that the communism was dead in Russia, that the new economic policy of Lenin was an admission that communism had failed, and that this is really how the Soviet regime initially um, got the investment and the credits it needed to build itself up into a power. And that the, basically what they've been doing the last 20 years is replaying NEP on a much grander scale over a larger number of years. And now we hear out of Moscow, President Medvedev saying that uh, they're rearming, that they've got this big armaments program going on, uh, that Russia's rebuilding, that the Russian economy in the last 10 years has doubled, has, has doubled its G, uh, GNP, which is, which is quite astonishing. Uh, actually, uh, absolutely astonishing. Um, you know, that's the, that's the bizarre thing of, of, of about about all this. That so is the fall of communism. You know, everybody sort of throw hands in the air, and it's over. But every intelligence agency, MI6, you know, FBI, everybody tells you that KGB spying is on the highest level ever, and still nobody cares. 
you know, business as usual. Nobody, nobody pays attention to deception at all. Yeah. At this, least it, it, publicly. Who knows? Yeah. You did an interview with uh, Ian Pesepa, who is the uh, uh, former acting uh, head of intelligence of, of communist Romania. Uh, he's living in under, you know, sort of FBI protection here in the United States. Uh, he defected like more than 25 years ago. I think it's close to 30 years ago he defected. Yeah, I think like 81 or something like yeah. that. Um, yeah, almost 30 years. Um, and he said some fascinating things along with some of the other defectors that you interviewed uh, about, you know, the way organized crime, the way... Um, uh, the goal always was of Moscow was through any means to destroy the United States. But, but Pesepa made a particularly interesting statement. He said that the, their goal was to destroy us by making us stupid through deception. And it seems that we have kind of arrived at this place. Yeah, I guess they realize that they cannot do it by force. So the only way to do it is pretty much do it from inside us. You know, so it's just about manipulating the politicians and, and and finance, international finance and all that stuff, the way that pretty much we will disintegrate by our own will, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, just uh, sitting here talking to you this way, knowing the popular culture, knowing what most people think, they're going, where are these guys still living in the 1950s? You know, the Cold War's over, we won. You know, it's it's so deeply ingrained that you basically can't tell people they won't accept it. Yeah. It's But it's but you would think that those people are following the economy and politics, let's say, in Eastern Europe, you know, in the last 20 years. They must see what's happening, how Russian mafia, Russian business is taking over everything there, you know, how, how nasty the politics are there, how everything is really heading in that... Eastern or pushed in that Eastern Europe, Eastern um, Soviet, uh, former Soviet Union type of, you know, uh, thinking again, and uh, mm -hmm. nobody cares. Nobody sees that as an important thing. They're so good at manipulating public opinion through disinformation for, for forming people's opinions. Uh, we saw this in the Ukrainian outcome of the Ukrainian elections here. Uh, we had had a presidential candidate poisoned uh, in 2004, uh, Viktor Yushchenko, and, and the backlash from that, uh, from falsifying the results of the election and poisoning, was that he got elected president. But the Russian agents in the Ukrainian Duma froze him out. Uh, he, his powers were diminished. He was uh, unable to make any reforms in the country. The, the population became disgusted with his ineffectiveness. And here, five years later, they elected the man who was thought to be his poisoner, or behind his poisoning, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, to be president. And yeah. they just, they completely, they wrote it out. They had this horrible scandal where the people who had poisoned the Ukrainian president had fled to Moscow were under Moscow's protection. Moscow wouldn't even allow Ukrainian investigators to interview them. And uh, it just, it's all swept under the rug. And Europe goes on. They don't see this threat, that the threat is clandestine. It seems to me that uh, free democratic countries have no way of dealing once they've opened their doors to trade with Russia to the uh, allowed the legal uh, the illegal activities of the, of the uh, Russian mafia, the money laundering and the drug trafficking and the 
other organized crime activities that they they basically the cor the corruption the blackmail the influence of the money that they uh, it, it's just too much that they basically didn't Vladimir Bukowski say something to you to the effect that that the West European countries were largely under Russian influence now oh yeah because they never pretty much fall off that influence uh, and he was talking about that certain like now it's like a third echelon a fourth echelon of politicians who are already sort of lined up to you know enter the political life and, and push the agenda so because it was perfectly prepared and very rationalized in a way so even today if you see some new politicians coming on the scene probably it's not by accident that those people were sort of prepared to step in you know and mm -hmm. continue Let's talk about Vaclav Klaus for a second. You know, I, uh -huh. I, I hear Vaclav Klaus, you know, it's, this is amazing. People think he's kind of a Reagan-esque kind of Czech. He stands up against global warming. He takes these right-wing positions. He sounds so good in his sound bites and his English when he gets to, when you see him on the BBC or American journalists interview him. But the reality of Vaclav Klaus is completely different than the presentation of Vaclav Klaus. Yeah, it's a very controversial, controversial figure from the day one because from people who rem remember him from 88, 89, you know, he was very polite, quiet man, you know, he just was, he kept it behind and he's just, when opportunity arised, he just stepped in and pretty much took over the whole movement in a way. Because when uh, dissidents, you know, were unable to create a political party, he was the one who actually created the ODS party, which was sort of right, right-oriented, you know, political party as a, as a opposition to socialists, and he he took over. And even before that, he was uh, very controversial in a way because he was working in that prognosis institute, which was created to. Uh, pretty much finding the way how to transform a economy from socialist to market economy. So he was working there. He was able to study and travel to the West at the time where nobody could, you know. Uh -huh. So then, of course, he's saying, oh, I was never a member of the Communist Party. Even I applied. They didn't want me. Well, sure, why they would be? Because this way he was more useful for the future. That's, that was common tactics, you know. Yeah. When I was... Uh, when was it, like, uh, 80, no, 70, 76, you know, I was offered, hey, can you join us, you know, because one of my bosses was military, in the film industry, he was actually military intelligence officer, and he, and he said, well, it doesn't matter, you are, like, not uh, in any party or anything, actually, it is good for the, your future, you know, <laughs> so... They were already picking up people in that time with this sort of uh, wrong background. So because it, it, they knew that it would beneficial down the road. Yeah, that those people they were create, creating the new elite for the post-communist era. Yeah, and that that elite remains under their control. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that the idea that all these countries inside NATO countries that used to be in the Warsaw Pact, like Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, <clears throat> they aren't 
really allies of the United States. They're only pretending, or their leaders are only pretending. That's probably the right assumption. They, they are probably, once in a while you run in some really patriotic people who think otherwise, but they, they are in such a minority that I don't think they can they can make, you know, too much difference. If, right. uh, yeah, you can allow people to be independent if they're not able to coordinate with each other. Uh, so whether you have President Vaclav Klaus or President Vaclav Havel, um, uh, you have a situation which is extremely deceptive um, in which uh, Western businessmen, Western governments are completely disoriented thinking that things are different than they are. Uh, you had you had interviewed some people around uh, Vaclav Havel, the famous uh, playwright and dissident that became president after the Velvet Revolution. Um, what kind of things were you told about him by the people that were around him? Yeah, it's quite funny in a way because all those people I interviewed were his good best friends, you know. But in a way, they agreed that Václav Havel was never a person who, the way he was presented, he was very different people. He was never to, able to make any decisions. He never was uh, like the person who would actually sacrifice something for bigger good. He was mostly thinking about, like he was very much about himself, you know, and his image and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, he, he the image the media and Western media actually created, you know, wasn't Václav Havel as a as a real person at all. And uh, his relationship with the KGB, did you determine he had one? Well, that's that thing that um, nobody can really like uh, really prove, but uh -huh. there are there is evidence that he was in touch with KGB people during the period of 89 and afterwards a little bit when everything was formed because uh, he was taking instruction or somehow secretly negotiating uh, with them. There's no question about it. There were some other Czech politicians like Kotsap and, and some, there's one more guy, I forgot the name. They were actually organizing those meetings when uh, when uh, they were like uh, transfer, transferring information from Soviet embassy to to Václav Havel's you know headquarters and back and forth and organized the meetings in in safe houses. Then Stanislav Milota, a friend of mine who was his best friend and his bodyguard for a while, he he was he has one he's described one personal experience to me when he actually was invited together with him to one of those crucial meetings with KGB guys. So they went there, it was like they were, there was Milota, Havel, two KGB Russian-speaking officers and one translator. So before they went to that meeting, uh, the other guy who was actually later, or actually during the time he was already uh, the chairman of that Harta Foundation, you know, and he gave Milota tape recorder to voice recorder to record the meeting <laughs> conversation. So they were sitting in the room discussing. 
pretty much nothing of importance. And after like a half an hour, the recorder starts to beep. So Milota panicked, you know, he pretended that the whole thing is just a pager. He went out of the room, he dumped recorder and flushed it down the toilet and left the building and never came back. And of course, meeting continued without any witnesses, just between Havel and those two KGB officers. So when I, when Milota told me the story, I told him, did you ever think that actually Yano gave you this recorder to you on purpose so they can get rid of you and Havel can finally speak with Russians, you know, alone? And he sort of looked at me and said, well, once you mention it, I will have to think about it for the rest of my life. <laughs> it, 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 ne- it never crossed his mind that he could be fooled like that, you know. Yes, yeah, and the KGB is so sophisticated about things like that, that they actually, uh, deception is their forte. Um, yeah, they couldn't get to Havel in person at all. He was always with somebody, so this was the perfect, you know, scenario how to get rid of naive Milota. Naive Molota. And, um, of course, uh, what we saw with, uh, with the uh, illustration process in uh, Czechoslovakia, the process of attempting to pure, purify the country of the communists, uh, the communist criminals that had governed it, misgoverned it for years and years, they never, this process got completely screwed up. And so the communists never really did get an accounting. Um, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Hello. Yeah, Robert, can you hear oh. me? Yeah, I, I just you just dropped off something. Oh, okay. okay. Um, so, could you tell us a little bit about the process of attempting to get rid of the communists out of Czech politics and how it collapsed? Geez, where to start with that one? I, that's actually. I don't know, was there any attempt to do that? <laughs> <laughs> we heard about it over here, but, uh, well, I, well, let's start with the fact well, that... Well, because, was... because actually the bottom line of the whole revolution in 89 was that, that uh, Havel actually agreed to not punish communists, and he sort of made agreement with communists. So in first government, actually, after the revolution, they were still communists in there, you know. Right. And uh, what about the the files that were supposedly found that had the names of communist agents? Oh, that has something to do more or less with, with secret police and communism, actually. Yes. So, of course, those the other people in my book are witnessing of that situation. Where actually, files were for certain of certain individuals, and files files in general were manipulated, destroyed, or transported. To back to Moscow, uh, like nine months before revolution, you know. So oh, that's an interesting point. The fact that the, they were uh, preparations, vast clerical preparations, months ahead of the revolution, moving intelligence files out of the country to Moscow, and, and we're talking about an enormous number of files, actually. Enormous, and no, nobody knows actually numbers. Uh, is my memories are okay. Then, then one person in my book is actually saying that the plane. This actually, it's it, it, it Jacek is that director of of Institute for Investigating Crime of Communism in Prague. He was saying that the 
courier plane was flying every week to Russia loaded with papers, you know. Mm-hmm. So and that was diplomatic courier plane. So they were transporting that stuff in, in major amounts. And whatever they couldn't, they were burning stuff as well, you know, and uh, who knows how many files they actually manipulated, you know, or, or faked. Right. And actually, even, even Peter, Peter Sibulka, who published files after revolution, the files of, of, of secret police uh, officers and collaborators, uh, he now pretty much agreed that he was used also, that actually those files were doctored, you know, and actually they just published name of, names of people who were useless for the future. Right, they had people that, that, that they could just... Uh, yeah, just yeah. some people were sacrificed, you know, for whatever reasons. And, and of course, the files can actually distinguish who was actively involved with police or who were just investigated or offered the collaboration. So it, it's mm-hmm. pretty sh- shady already. It's pretty, pretty shady already. Um, yeah, I, I did some interviews with <coughs> Peter Sabolka. Uh, several years ago, when uh, on my website jrnyquist.com, people can go there and read them. It's um, it's it's so it's so tricky. It's such a dangerous area to investigate and look at that you can get fooled any number of ways. And and false documents, uh, false documentation is something the KGB has specialized in over the years. Um, yeah. uh, I am uh, Jeff Nyquist. Uh, I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is the strategiccrisis.com podcast, and we're uh, talking to Robert Bukar, a uh, cinematographer who has been working on a documentary about the changes in Eastern Europe, and he's got a book that's just come out, and, uh, and Reality Be Damned is the title of the book. Um, Robert, um, you know, it's... it's uh, in terms of of what is going on now in the Czech Republic, you had, you know, you had, we all hear here that there's freedom of speech, and you've published your book over there. Uh, how does the KGB control of these countries of like Czechoslovakia work today? Uh, it's a sort of soft control as opposed to the way it used to be. Well, it's of course it's different, but. I don't know if you call it soft. People are disappearing. People are murdered. You know, mafia is blamed for that. Um, you know, I was invited to the conference last May to in Prague. There was like forty-five participants from around the world, some from intelligence uh, circles, some uh, journalists, some ambassadors, and one of the topics was KGB influence of Western governments. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I believe it's serious thing. Some people realize that there were some people in that conference, especially from the West, who are still very skeptical to that stuff. There are people like from uh, Baltic Republics, Poland, uh, Singapore, uh, who are very serious, Romania, who are very serious about that thing. So, uh, yeah, I guess... Uh, you know, I, I give you an example. So my book was published in Czech Republic in November. Till today, there was no single media outlet who ever mentioned it, no journalist who will write a review of it. Complete silence. The only 
response in Europe I got was from, a, uh, I think it's Croatia paper, uh, Glo- what's it called, Globus Weekly, you know. So uh-huh. in far Balkan state, you know. So nobody in Czech Republic, you know, was willing or, yeah, was willing to come up and bring this up. Even I tried. I I, I had my connections in media and some political circles and stuff. But but nobody, you know, one actually wrote me apologizing letter back saying, you know, sorry, you know, no, 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 there's so much stuff going on and nobody wants to burn fingers to writing about this. The funny way, the only response I got, I guess, one I sort of value myself, was one from former high-ranking Communist Party officials, huh. whose name is Rudolf Hegenbart. He was something like Communist Party, Politburo, one of the highest guys who was actually also in a way in the charge of uh, transformation of economy down the road. Uh-huh. And, and after the collapse of communism, Havel's government made sort of, for the public, made escape goat of him. And uh, when I wanted him to be interviewed in my film, he said, uh, no, I can do it. I got, you know, death threats from those guys. Uh, they said that I will end up... <laughs> In the back, in the end of the, in the bottom of the lake, if I speak ever. So he never talked to me. But then after the book came out, he sent me an email and he said in his email that he really enjoyed reading it because everything, many, most of the assumptions in my book I come up with, he knows and he agrees with because when he was studying in Moscow in the 80s, uh, they were lectures on all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Lectures about the changes of the end of the new system of the future. Yeah, so I found it quite cute, you know, to get this type of uh, feedback. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good feedback from a former high-level communist who who kind of got put out to pasture, who didn't fit nicely in their plan. Those are the people, by the way, those are the kind of people, the people whose careers went sideways, that are more willing to speak from the communist side than anyone else seems like yeah that. yeah on the other hand then you read an interview like with Alois uh, Lawrence who was the interior minister at the time uh, and he wrote in I guess it was independent magazine paper you know how everything he did was his personal effort to save you know the country and blah 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 uh, it's, it's ridiculous because uh, I saw in the early 90s, I saw a documentary done by BBC when he in his native, you know, uh, Slovak tongue, he's saying that pretty much everything was organized from Moscow by KGB. So mm-hmm. you wonder, does he change the story or does translator translate things differently? Yes. Yeah, that certain things are allowed to be said, and then wait a minute, we can't say that now. Um, it's it's and and you know some of these guys they it's almost like they innocently state the truth about what's happening as if it's not a problem to admit it, and then later on they clam up. Yeah, the other good one is like uh, that. 
guy Zivchak in my book, you know, the secret police office yeah. who, who organized that student demonstration and he played a role of the dead students which sparked the Right. Zivchak will remind people who don't know. He's the guy that organized the uh, the the demonstrations of the Velvet Revolution that turned to violence, that caused the death, that caused the outrage, that caused the collapse of communism. And uh, and you were you were going to explain how he was actually the dead body. Yeah, he played the dead body. And funny thing, so he wrote me also and saying. He was quite upset, saying that nobody believes him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he tries to tell them that he's dead and he's he's alive. <laughs> that, that not even Western media are interested in his story anymore. That how what actually happened? That everybody's like uh, pulling off so those bullshit stories about how beautiful a revolution it was. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the history is changing. That's what it is. Yeah. So, um, so is there, uh, given that that history was falsified on such a massive scale, and that we have this false notion of history? And here, you've done this documentary. You've interviewed KGB defectors, former secret police officials, uh, f former head of the CIA. All these people, uh, historians like Bukowski, who have all the documents to show that it was planned, that it was part of a deception, and yet you can't get anyone whether in the Czech Republic or here in the U.S., to even care about it. Yeah, it seems like nobody either cares or nobody dares to care. You know, like when I talked last time to Bukowski in Prague last summer, he mentioned to me that he's got finished the book about reunification of Germany, what really happened, and nobody wants to publish it. He cannot find a publisher. So, and, of course, his story of the reunification of Germany is is that it was all a plot by Moscow. Well, it's based to, on those uh, documents he got from Gorbachev's library. It's from uh, Gorbachev's uh, personal documentation. Yeah. The, the, the communism was collapsed because they believed that the united Germany, they could eventually turn it to the left. They could take it over. They could break up the power of the American bloc in Europe, Western Europe, and turn everything around so that Russia would be the dominant country in Europe. And it looks like they're really, slowly but surely, they are headed in that direction, despite everything. Yeah, maybe they didn't get politically right the way, the way they wanted, but economically they are pushing, you know, and they are having influence and increasing influence. And, and like going back, you know, to this situation, like in, in, in Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, uh, now, like twenty years after after revolution, right? Mm -hmm. There are still over two thousand former secret police officers, you know, in 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 new secret uh, new intelligence agency called BIS. So they never got rid of them, you know. And we are talking about so-called secret police. We are not talking about uh, military intelligence, not. We are not talking about counterintelligence because those names were never released. Mm -hmm. We are not talking about economic uh, espionage and all that stuff. So enormous apparatus from the past uh, stayed intact. So you can think about the same thing in Germany, Poland, and other places. You know, you know Radio Free Europe has an office there in Prague, and um, 
I've heard stories. There was a, 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 a guy who used to work there who died suspiciously. He, he was of Georgian background here, I think last summer it was. Uh, people are, like you said, disappearing. They're dying under strange circumstances. Um, it's chalked up to crime or mystery or suicide or the Russian mafia. Um, so there, the, people are either uh, uh, threatened into silence, as, the, as that one former communist official told you, you didn't want to end up at the bottom of the lake, or they're bribed with a position or a job or something that they want. And so everything can be sort of managed that way. And if anybody decides to speak out of school, they want to say something to someone like Jeff Nyquist or Robert Bukhar, the world doesn't even notice. The world turns a deaf ear to it. Yeah, exactly. You know, there was just recently, a couple of weeks ago, there was an article published in Moscow, one of the Moscow papers, uh, talking about uh, Russian mafia's influence around the globe. And it was written by Russian, published in Moscow, and they admit that some 90% of organized crime globally is under so-called Russian mafia influence. Yeah. You know, but at the end they say, oh, but there is no connection with KGB because all those people are living in those countries for for many years. They have different citizenships now. They have nothing to do with KGB. You so, know, I, I had a KGB defector, and I'm getting a little bit of an echo. Um, I, I talked to a KGB defector uh, more than 10 years ago. Uh, no, I mean, not a KGB defector, a GRU defector, who, when he was uh, returning from uh, overseas and he was at the airport in Moscow, he was approached by Russian mafia figures who knew his rank, who knew his uh, name, and they asked him to work for this uh, Russian mafia outfit. And when he went to his uh, general at the GRU headquarters, the general uh, uh, checked on it and said, well, that's KGB General so-and-so's operation. You can join it if you want. You know, sort of indicating that the KGB was sort of overseeing these um, Russian mafia organizations. And, of course, it goes back to Khrushchev. And I think you interviewed Joe Douglas in your, um, in your documentary and in your yes, book. Yes, I did. And Joe Douglas is, is one of the researchers who, who discovered massive evidence and testimony of Russian involvement in organi organized crime going back to the 1950s where Khrushchev ordered the KGB to get involved with organized crime, to take over organized crime groups, to infiltrate the mafia in Italy, to um, create new Russian organized crime outfits. And, of course, the uh, KGB uh, uh, was free in Russia to use any methods against criminals. Here in the United States, criminals have rights. In the Soviet Union, criminals did not have rights, and they could literally threaten them put them under their thumb, make deals with them, force them to work with the KGB or else. And so they, they could create criminal groups and organizations from Russian criminals, guided by Russian intelligence officers, Soviet intelligence officers, and send them out to different countries. And, you know, it was interesting. Um, the book uh, by David Remnick, uh, the famous David Remnick, who won... Um, the Nobel, I think it was the Nobel Prize for writing Lenin's Tomb, one of the, the leading books on the collapse of the Soviet Union. He had this part toward the end of the book where he interviewed the uh, head of the uh, Italian uh, Parliamentary Committee of Inquiry into the Mafia 
in Italy. There, and this guy told them that they had determined that the three leading mafias in Italy, the Calabrian, Neapolitan, and, and Sicilian mafias, were all being coordinated and directed by Russia, that Russia was the international capital of organized crime, and that uh, where the leaders of these Italian mafias would go to Russia to conferences, to study how to perfect the methods of money laundering and drug trafficking and so on. So there's a lot of documentation, a lot of testimony from mainstream sources as well as from defector sources and sources that are ignored by the intelligence community and officials in Washington that point to this organized crime criminal uh, connection. And, um, and of course, you in your interviewing, that subject was discussed by some of the people there um, yeah, even Oleg Gordievsky talks about it. He's, he's talking about that many activities in Spain, Italy, Germany, England, and United States seems like mafia, but basically it's just you know KGB operating under the mafia, you know uh -huh. banner. You know. Uh -huh. KGB under the mafia banner. Um, it's. Um, it's interesting. Let's let's talk about how people can get your book. Have they put your book in Reality Be Damned? Have they put it in the bookstores, or uh, can you get it by looking at Amazon? Yeah, the best thing is, the easiest thing is go to Amazon.com and type in, uh, real, in Reality Be Damned, or my name, Robert Bukharo. They can go also on www.strategistpublishinggroup.com. Uh, and when, we put, when, when yeah. we put this podcast up, we'll we'll put a link to um, we we will put a link to uh -huh. your um, your yeah. book on Amazon so that the people can and, can go there. And people who are interested in the project in general, which actually is the the film itself, which is not finished, it's it's cut. It's ninety five minutes long, but it's just you know parade of talking heads. So it, it's stuck in the financial limbo because I need to get money to buy archive TV news, real footage, they can go to www.collapseofcommunism.com and there is, a, there is a lot of information about what we just talked about. They can get some ideas what everything is about. Yeah, Robert Robert needs funding. And, and of course, uh, those of you out there that, uh, that have taken interest in this, that realize this is extremely important, that the education of people in the United States uh, somehow we have to do this mission. We have to educate people about what's really happening. And uh, Robert, you've been doing a great service, uh, and it, it must seem very difficult when you've been working at this for years uh, and you get such, you get no support, you get almost no results. When you first started this project, and I remember you ta spoke to me about your plan to do this, did you think that you were going to be left out on the cold like this, that there was going to be no interest in this? Oh, no way. I knew it will be tough, you know, thing to do. But I never never crossed my mind that it would be comp so completely dry and that so completely lonely, you know. <laughs> uh, I, I was sort of in the beginning, it was like 2003, when I was discussing this project with Peter Sibulka in Prague and I told him, I don't think I want to do it really the other like 10 years of my life. Is it worth it? And Peter looked at me and said, you know, if you don't do it, nobody else will do it. And it sort of, you know, stuck in my head. And uh, before I landed back in Chicago, I realized that I will do it. 
But then, of course, I got some partners in it who thought, oh, that's easy. We have a contact. We can raise money, you know, to, I don't know, $100,000, not a big deal for documentary. And they all dropped like dead flies because they re- after a year or two, they realized nobody gives them a dime. And actually, anytime we turn, you know, people stop talk to us, you know, really mm. bizarre, you know, it's really like a poison. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, it's scary because you think, is it the disinformation of the KGB that's so successful that has turned people away from even wanting to know? Or is it the fact that... Uh, that people are just plain uninterested in the subject of of the strategic, you know, position between Russia and America. They just want it to go away. I mean, what? How do we explain this this thing? Is it is it the fact that the disinformation of the KGB over the years has worked so well that people just mentally can't go there? Yeah, I guess I guess as far as media goes. People in media know that there is a line they cannot cross to pretty much uh, not get ridiculed by some other media or mm-hmm. get kicked in the ass from some other place. Because surprisingly, you know, all um, sort of feedback for any effort to get in touch with somebody in major media was quite same. I always got an answer your project doesn't fit our programming profile. Mm-hmm. So, okay, what the heck that means? I don't know, but it came from everywhere, so that means that nobody wants to touch this topic. You know? I mean, you, you interviewed some of the biggest names in this whole field, like Vladimir Bukovsky and Robert Gates and Oleg Gordievsky, the KGB defector, and and then uh, Ian Pesepa, uh, the uh, communist intelligence defector. So many people, Joe Douglas with his scholarship, um, you know, and yet no interest in this. Uh, it it is dismaying. It is stunning. Uh, the whole thing it is a, it's a lesson in itself about what's happened. Uh, do you have any uh, any thoughts on what you're going to do next? Are you going to be able to continue making people keep emailing me? You know, when's Robert? documentary <laughs> going to get finished we want to see it we want to see the interviews are, are you going to continue to refine the even if you don't have the money to buy the the the, the footage that you need uh, yeah you know the original idea was that i will do film and then as a byproduct i will do the book and you know, maybe of course it turned out to be impossible so i did book to actually get information out now I so what I have to do now is just finish that film because books are done. So I think I have to finish that film by the end of the year, no matter what. So maybe it wouldn't be so flashy film as it should be, because if I can if I can buy the footage, it could be a really interesting movie, you know, to watch. Mm-hmm. Now it's just interesting movie to listen, you know. So mm-hmm. I can probably get some. Um, or reality-free still pictures, maybe something can make it somehow visually more interesting, but it will end up more or less, again, as a, as a talking head stuff. It won't be really visual as should, film should be, which as a filmmaker drives me nuts, you know, but <laughs> it yeah, doesn't make but... sense to sit on the material forever. I, I have to get it out in some form, you know, and just get yeah. over it. Yeah. Well, Robert uh, Bukhar, I want to thank you for joining us on the strategiccrisis.com podcast.
and I wish you well. I, I hope that it uh, that you get more out. I know there are people that follow the website that do listen, and through word of mouth, uh, maybe we'll uh, we'll get this ball rolling someday here. Yeah, maybe the book will generate some money, and I can finish the movie. Who knows? Uh, Who knows? People buy it and read it. Maybe they All help right. me to finish it. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. And uh, Thank you, Jeff. Good luck. Uh, this is Jeff Nyquist, and this has been the StrategicCrisis.com podcast for Sunday, March 28th, uh, 2010.